Take your Bible, please, and turn to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Boy, it's a real blessing to see all you young people here. Will you do us a favor? Remain in your seat during the preaching. Because when you get up and go out, everybody watches you go out and come back in. And I believe the devil's chief business today is to snatch away the good seed of the Word of God that's been sown. So let me encourage you, unless it's an emergency, if you'd remain in your seat. All right, Daniel chapter 12, please, and verse 4 is our text. Notice, please, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. It says, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. For many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Thank you very much. You may be seated. If we were to do a study on the book of Daniel tonight, I would divide the book into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 6, I would call the practical section. Chapters 7 through 12, I would call the prophetic section. And obviously, what we have read tonight as our text would fall into the latter category. Now, as you come to Daniel chapter 12, there are several things that he talks about that are of prophetic uh, uh, importance. First of all, in verse 1, he talks about an unprecedented time in human history which is called the tribulation, and I preached on that last night. It's an unprecedented time in the history of mankind. And then you go down to verse 2, and he talks about a resurrection. I believe that that resurrection is not dealing with a rapture. The rapture is for the church, but that resurrection is for the Old Testament saints along with the tribulation saints. They are resurrected just before the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the seven years of tribulation. And then you go down to verse uh, 7, and there's an interesting phrase in that verse, a time, times, and a half a time. That is interpreted three and a half years the last half of the tribulation period. And we talked about that last night. And then you go down to verse 11, and he tells you that that three and a half years are 1,290 days. The Jewish calendar is not 365 days that we have, 360 days. So that 1,260 days would be the three and a half years. And then something very interesting. In verse 12, he gives you 45 additional days after the tribulation. And uh, anything you say about that would be speculation. Some people think, and I do, I believe it's a cleanup time because we preached about last night millions will be slain when Russia comes down to Jerusalem. And uh, there's going to be a long time that's going to necessitate cleanup. Also, the temple is desecrated, and the temple will be cleaned out. 
But anyway, there you have prophetic significance. Now, these things will happen in the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. Let's go back to our text tonight, verse 4. Daniel tells us that there are two things that will be prevalent in the tribulation. Number one, many will run to and fro. Does that not uh, indicate an increase in travel? I think it does. It's interesting, sir, uh, uh, the man who, who created uh, uh, the um, time when the apple comes down and conked him on the head and uh, the law of gravity. He read this in 1680 and he said, I envision a time that man will be able to travel at the rate of 50 miles an hour. Think of that. Well, 80 years later, the French infidel Voltaire read Newton's statement, and he said, you see, that goes to show you what believing the Bible does for an otherwise intelligent man. He said, why, it makes a sheer fool out of him. He said, well, if a man traveled 30 or 40 miles an hour, his heart would stand still and he would die of suffocation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have Interstate 75 and Interstate 10, which divide the human race between the quick and the dead. Amen. <laughs> so he says in the last days, uh, there would be an increase in travel. No matter what country we go in, and I preached in 35 countries, every country, the highways are lined with automobiles, even in third world countries. All right, so number one, an increase in travel. Number two, he says knowledge shall be increased. Here's an interesting statistic. In the last 6,000 years, of the 100 greatest discoveries, 84 took place in the 20th century. Can I repeat that? Of the last 6,000 years of human history, 100 of the greatest discoveries took place 84 in the 20th century. And it's amazing what a computer can do. Do you know that in Brussels, Belgium, they have a computer that can contain a history of over 7 billion people on planet Earth? But listen carefully. I don't think that's what Daniel is telling us. I think God told Daniel this, that in the last days, knowledge about the end times would be increased. And I believe we're living in such a day. Hey, you read books by great men of God in years gone by, like D.L. Moody, R.A. Torrey, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and you tell me how many you find that they preached about the second coming. Not very many, folks. A man came to me and he said, I've got 3,300 sermons that Spurgeon had in print. And he said, I have them categorized. And he said, out of 3,300 sermons, only six dealt with the second coming. I've read several biographies of Billy Sunday. Right now, I'm reading a book on the New York crusade of Billy Sunday when the First World War broke out. And folks, Billy Sunday boasted that in every meeting, he preached one time on the second coming. 
You know the problem with that? The New York crusade was three months. If he only preached one time on the second coming, what in the world did he preach? If I go into a church and I preach 10 times, I may preach six times on topics relating to the second coming of Christ. And I think here's the key. Ever since 1948, when Palestine became a sovereign nation, there has been a deluge of preaching on the second coming. You will not hear a fundamental preacher preach before he mentions a second coming, before he closes his message. And so today, I believe that knowledge about the second coming has increased. Now let me caution you, be careful what you base your premise of the second coming on. What do I mean? Some lady came to me one night and she said, Brother Comfort, I read a track recently that in Jerusalem, the buzzards are laying four eggs instead of one. Doesn't that prove that Jesus is coming soon? You know what that proves? They got a whole lot of healthy buzzards in Jerusalem. That's all that proves. By the way, Pastor, one time when I was there, I asked our Jewish guide, are the buzzards really laying four eggs instead of one? He said, I hadn't heard anything about it. If it's true, nobody around here knows anything about it. Be careful what you base your premise of the second coming on. Larry Brubaker traveled with me as my song leader for 40 years. In the early 70s, he was song leader in a citywide crusade. He said in that crusade, the evangelist got up and he held up a check and he said, ladies and gentlemen, here is a check that we are sending rock from Indiana to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now folks, there's a problem with that. I lived in Tennessee for six years and we didn't grow plants in Tennessee, we grew rocks. But I will tell you there is more rock in Jerusalem than the entire state of Tennessee. So be careful what you base your premise of the second coming on. I'll tell you a book you can get very cheaply tonight. You know what that is? 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988. You can get that book very cheaply. I want to say every disciple in Jesus' day was expecting Christ's return in his lifetime. Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, But when the chief shepherd shall appear, then shall ye receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, But when the good shepherd shall appear, then shall ye receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. John said in 1 John 2, 28, And now little children abide in him, that when he may appear, get it, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And these disciples were not expecting Jesus to come by what they saw in the sky. They were expecting Jesus to come because of what they read in the scripture. And there are a whole lot of Christians that are gazing when they ought to be going. Now tonight I'm going to speak on the second coming from a little different viewpoint. The practical aspects of the second coming. 
I want us to notice three characteristics in your life and mine ere we are looking for the second coming. Take your Bible, please, and turn to Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Number one, the second coming of Christ will produce salvation or regeneration. Acts 3, 19 and 20, notice. Peter preached at Solomon's porch, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. All right, look this way. At Pentecost, Peter preached this. He said, One day the sun is going to become black as sackcloth of hair. The moon is going to turn into blood. The stars are going to fall from their sockets. And then at Solomon's porch, he said, in view of the second coming of Christ, you better repent. Let me say there is not an intelligent person in this building tonight that can believe what I'm going to preach about the second coming and go out the door unsaved. Why? Three things. Number one, it is a time of separation. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. All right, listen. There's a qualifying phrase in that passage, two words, those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ tonight? For the first seven years of my life, I was in the Roman Catholic Church, but I was not in Christ. The next eight years of my life, I was in a Southern Baptist Church, but I was not in Christ. Pastor, I traveled the state of North Carolina singing in revival meetings for a Southern Baptist preacher. But if Jesus had come during those eight years, I'd have been left behind. When I was 15 years of age, I was born again. Now I'm in Christ. I see in my mind a man and his wife in bed together, hypothetically. Jesus may come in the middle of the night. All right, the wife is saved, the husband is not. What happens? The wife goes to meet Christ. Her bedclothes are lying unnaturally behind. He goes the next morning to the kitchen. Honey, are you in there? She's not there. He goes to the living room. Honey, are you in there? She's not there. Why? She's in Christ. She's gone. He's left behind. Am I talking to a mother tonight who may have a baby in the nursery and you're not saved? If Jesus comes during the course of this service, I believe the baby goes to meet Christ and you're left behind, eternally separated from that child. I want to ask you, are you in Christ tonight? Number one, it'll be a time of separation. Number two, it will be a time of deception. I preached last night on history's greatest imitator, the Antichrist. One day, the Antichrist will step on the scene and cause the whole world to fall down and worship him. 
Daniel 7 and verse 8, he's called the little horn. Daniel 8 and verse 23, he's the king of fierce countenance. Daniel 11, 36, he is the prince that shall come. Daniel 11:37, he is the willful king. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3, he's a man of sin and the son of perdition. 2 Thessalonians 2:11, he is called the lie. Revelation 9:11, he's the king of the bottomless pit. A time of separation and a time of deception. And I preached last night that one day he will come with all lying signs and wonders. And the world will think, this is the Christ. And those who are left behind and have heard the gospel will not have a chance to be saved in the tribulation period. Last night I alluded to the uh, Left Behind series. Let me ask you a question. Who is the oldest man that ever lived? Anybody? Methuselah, how long did he live? 969 years. Someone said God gave the people in Noah's day 120 years to repent. He didn't do it. You know how long he gave them? 969 years. You say, where do you get that? All right, do you know what the name Methuselah means? It means when he is dead, it shall be sent. Don't you see God was giving the people a sign? He was saying, keep your eyes on that little baby boy, Methuselah, because when he dies, a judgment of God is coming. It would seem to me like anybody in their right mind would have watched Methuselah, and when Methuselah got a little cold, it would have started a worldwide revival. When he is dead, it shall be sin. All right, a man by the name of Enoch had a son whose name was Methuselah. When Methuselah was 187, he bare a son whose name was Lamech. When Lamech was 182, he bare a son whose name was Noah. How much are 187 and 182? 369. Do you know how old Noah was when God told him to get into the ark? He was 600 years old. How much are 369 plus 600? 969 years, the exact length of the life of Methuselah. And I believe the day that Methuselah died, God said, Noah, get in the ark. And God kept the door of the ark open seven more days. Isn't God so long-suffering? He gave them 969 years to repent. They didn't repent. Now he gives them seven more days of an extended period of grace. Question, who was it that closed the door after those seven days? It wasn't Noah. It was God. And here's what I'm saying. If Jesus comes in the course of this service and you are left behind, the door of opportunity is closed. So get saved tonight. Number one, it's a time of separation. Number two, it's a time of deception. And number three, it is a time of tribulation. Matthew 24, 21 and 22. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not from the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. 
And I said last night, Jesus knew there were not words in human vocabulary to explain the intensity of the tribulation. He simply said, there's never been a holocaust like it. There'll never be a calamity like it. It's a culmination of all the holocaust of all the ages. Now, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the judgments that take place on earth are brought about by man. But in the middle of the seven-year covenant, the Antichrist makes with the Jews. He breaks that covenant. And the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the judgments are sent down by God out of heaven. There will come a time when a young man will go to the spigot, try to get a glass of water. Instead, he will come back with a glass full of blood-colored water. He'll go to the bathtub, try to draw a bathtub full of water. Instead, he'll draw a bathtub full of blood-colored water. One day, the seven great seas will become as the blood of a dead man. Now, I don't know much about dead men, but I do know this. Whenever a man dies, his blood becomes a jelly-like substance. Can you imagine the seven great seas become as jelly-like blood, and all of the creatures in the sea die, and their stench raises up to heaven? And then one day, God is going to cause the sun to become scorching hot. And men will have a grievous sore over their entire body, and they'll gnaw their tongues with pain. And then one day, God is going to hang the curtain of night over the sun, moon, and stars, and it will be a dense darkness that will rival the darkness of an eternal hell. All right, listen. In the last half of the tribulation, God's going to command the bottomless pit to vomit up these giant demon-like locusts. Listen to the description. They have the face of a man, hair like a woman, tail like a scorpion, and teeth like a lion. And these scorpions will sting men for five months. Usually scorpions live on vegetation, but not so. These locusts will sting men who have bowed down to the Antichrist or received his mark in his forehead or in his hand. By the way, I've got a whole message in my book on prophecy about these judgments in the tribulation, talking about the mark of the beast in the forehead or in the hand. And then God is going to conclude the tribulation by causing the heavens to rain 100-pound hailstones. Think of that. I have in my files a newspaper clipping of a hailstone that fell on the state of Colorado, 98 pounds, 98 pounds. I want to ask you, my dear unsafe friend, where in the world are you going to hide when God lets the 100-pound hailstones fly? Men are going to hide in the dens of the caves. Hail will crush the caves. The islands will move out of their places. And men are going to scream, Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. You know, there's something worse, humanly speaking, than dying. You know what that is? To be in so much torment and agony that you want to die to get out of your agony. Well, men, in those days, many will try to die, but will not be able to die. 
Revelation 6, 15 through 17. But the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the rocks and the mountains, Fall on us! and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb is come, who shall be able to stand? Ladies and gentlemen, there's a prayer meeting I'm never going to attend. How about you? All right, number one, the second coming will produce salvation or regeneration. Now take your Bible and go to 1 John chapter 3. Number two, the second coming will produce sanctification or righteous living. Now, somebody has made this statement. Every admonition in the Bible has its root cause in the second coming. What does that mean? In other words, God says, do this. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. Do this. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. Now, prophecy in the Bible is not meant to entertain us. It is meant to do something to our lives. And you'll find this, whenever you have a prophetic statement, it is usually accompanied by a practical application. All right, notice please, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All right, that's a prophetic statement, right? All right, the practical application, verse 3. Every man that hath this hope in him, what? Purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Ladies and gentlemen, ere you're looking for the second coming, no preacher's going to have to browbeat you into giving up your dirty habits. Young people, are you listening? If you're looking for the second coming, no preacher's going to have to browbeat you into giving up bad music. You're going to give it up. Why? You won't want to be ashamed when he comes again. All right? Notice Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Why? Because we're looking for that second coming and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're looking for the second coming, you're going to get rid of ungodliness and worldly lust. Are you listening? You know how you define Hollywood? Ungodliness and worldly lust. Excuse me, I don't have time to argue with somebody who claims to be a Christian and he said, should a Christian support Hollywood? I say, get a brain. Get a brain. You mean I am to support an industry that wants to padlock every fundamental Baptist church in America? Not on your life. Should I support an industry that has made premarital sex extramarital sex, homosexuality, normal and acceptable, not on your life. Hollywood doesn't have one thing I want nor do I need. I was preaching in Wilmington, North Carolina. Young people, listen to this. A young man who was a senior in high school came to me 
And he said, Brother Comfort, he said, I really believe my mom and dad are saved. Don't have any problem believing that. But he said, they work 12, 14 hours a day, and they want to get me all these things. He said, I don't want things. I want parents. He said, we have HBO, Hell's Box Office, coming into our house. He said, I've got a television set in my bedroom. USA Today said that 68% of kids eight years and older have a television set in their bedroom. 61% of those have no restrictions by their parents. They can watch anything they want to watch. He said, Brother Comfort, night after night, I have watched nudity on the screen in my bedroom. He said, I went to my daddy's dresser drawer and I took his 357 Magnum and he said, I put it to my head and I spun the barrel and I said, God, if you want to take my life, may the barrel stop where the bullet is. He said, four times I squeezed the trigger and nothing happened. I want to say if he had committed suicide, those parents would have to share in the blame for garbage coming in their house. Here's an interesting passage concerning the second coming. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, and not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. You know what that's talking about? Laying up your treasures in heaven in view of the second coming of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Where are your treasures tonight? How you answer this question will tell me where your treasures are. What does money mean to you? If money is anything more than a vehicle, for doing the will of God, your treasures are on earth. They are not in heaven. Hey, one of the things that I praise God for about our students at Ambassador Baptist College, they know how to give. Many times when we have an evangelist there to open the semester first and second uh, semester, they preach in the morning and at night. And many times I've gone to the evangelist and I've said, what's the biggest love offering you've gotten? And they tell me. And most of the time, our students will go above that. We just had Jeremiah Clark, who's one of our graduates, preach opening semester. I said, Jeremiah, what's the biggest love offering you've had? He said, probably about $4,000. And I thought, we'll exceed that. And here were about 200 people, students and faculty and a few visitors, and for the week they gave him $5,200. And I tell our students, don't go through life like this. There's no joy in being a taker, and the average American is a taker. I said, here's the way to go through life. Go through life being a giver. 
That's where the joy is. I tried to teach our three girls when they were growing up, when God gives a comfort family more than we need, He gives it to us for the purpose of sharing with those who are in need. Now, I may break up when I tell this story, but in uh, October of 1996, I came into my office. We were in our old location. And my wife, who was my secretary, greeted me with these words. She said, honey, I just had a call from the First National Bank. And they said that we've got to have $8,000 at the First National Bank before the day is over to take care of withholding taxes. I said, wait a minute. Where are we going to get $8,000? I said, we've only got about about $1,000 in the school's bank account. And so I went into my office praying and wondering, how is God going to supply this? When I sat down at my desk, there was an envelope on my desk. And I opened it up from one of our married students, Jeff Lanier. Let me tell you about Jeff. He lived an hour away from the school, drove from Spartanburg to the school every day and back. He had a a 40-hour-a-week job. He had two children. Many times, Jeff Lanier didn't know where his next payment was coming from. But when I opened the letter, it read, Dear Brother Comfort, my wife and I three years ago began to pray that God would supply $10,000 for us to give to Ambassador Baptist College because of what the school has done for our family. He said, three years ago, I had a tremendous wreck. My medical expenses were over $10,000. And he said, because of a technicality, the insurance company would not honor that. So our church, Westgate Baptist Church, began to pray. And God brought in money from all over the United States to take care of my medical bills. He said, people I'd never met before. He said, every penny of that $10,000 was paid off. He said, you know, last week, we got a check in the mail from the insurance company three years later. He said, for $10,000. He said, my wife and I did not even discuss it. We just prayed about it separately. And he said, we came to the conclusion that this was the answer to prayer that we've been praying for three years. He said, I'm sending the check for $10,000 to the school because of how it has affected our family. And, uh, you know, I took that letter and I began to weep. My wife heard me weeping. She came into my office. She said, honey, what's wrong? I said, read this letter. She read it and she began to weep. She said, you know, honey, many of our students' dedication puts us to shame and that's the truth. That's the truth. You know what Jeff Lanier told me? He said before uh, he came to Ambassador, he made $45,000 to $50,000 a year. He said, I would give $4,500 and $5,000 for our tithe. He said, last year I made $10,000. Are you listening? He said, God enable my family to give. $30,000 for the work of Jesus Christ. You tell that to an unsaved banker and it'll blow his mind, folks. But Jeff Lanier's treasures are in heaven. Where are yours? 
All right, number one, the second coming will produce salvation or regeneration. Number two, it'll produce sanctification or righteous living. Now in closing, take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 13. Number three, it'll produce soul winning or a readiness to service. Romans 13, 11, and 12. It says, in that knowing the time, it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Look this way. Don't you sense a note of urgency in those verses? Sure. I want to say they were written 2,000 years ago. If there was an urgency in the heart of the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, how much more should there be an urgency in our heart in the day in which we live? To me, this is the greatest paradox in the Bible, Matthew 24, 12. It's his, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. That doesn't seem logical to me. It would seem to me like when iniquity is abounding, the love of many would wax hot. But I want to ask you, is that true? Now, I'm going to make a statement that's going to shock you, but I want you to listen. In the 60 years I have been in evangelism, I have never seen a day when alarm was at a greater height. Everywhere I go, people are saying the same thing. Every day, the foundation of our country is being destroyed. All right, I've never seen a day when alarm was at a greater height. Are you listening? I've never seen a day when consecration among Christians was at a lower depth. And ladies and gentlemen, it would seem to me like when the, we know the day is coming when Jesus is going to take us away, that it would flame the fires in our heart. I have been to many funerals in the last six months. I went to a funeral three weeks ago in Morgantown, West Virginia. Benny Moran, 85 years old, one of my good friends, died of cancer. I was in Tucson, Arizona six months ago, and one of my best friends, J.C. Joyner, pastored 60 years and died at the age of 87. I went to Tom Farrell's funeral just a few weeks ago, 69 years old. One of our graduates, 38 years of age, Michael Hankey, went to be with the Lord. Tammy McEldowney from a Memorial Baptist Church in her mid-30s went home to be with Christ. And you know what my attitude is? Who's going to take their place? Who's going to take their place? Somebody called me not long ago and said, can you recommend a prospective pastor for our church? And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will go past 13 years of my past meetings and I'll try to find some preachers that are available out of those uh, hundreds of meetings that we've held in the last 13 years. And when I called them back, I said, you know what? Probably 90% of the men on those lists are either retiring or they have retired. And I said, out of all of those 13 years of meetings, I only found two that I could recommend. 
Listen to me, young men. There ought to be some of you that say, I'm going to take Tom Farrell's place. I'm going to take Ron Comfort's place. One day, this pastor is going to go to be with the Lord, and some of you ought to say, I'm going to take Andy Bloom's place. My heart is so heavy tonight, there are less young people wanting to go into full-time Christian service than any time during my 60 years in evangelism. People ask me to chronicle our ministry, and I do it like this. In the 60s through halfway through the 80s, we would have an average of 30 professions a meeting. Many meetings we had, we had over 100 professions. If I speak to 150 kids in the junior high and high school, you know what? 25, 30 of them would come forward before the week was over and surrender to serve God. But it's not like that anymore. We got to the mid-80s and parents became more concerned about their 401ks than it did about people dying and going to hell. And we wanted our children to enjoy the American dream rather than to serve God with their life. Young people, my life is almost spent. I sat with my granddaughter in our church and my pastor preached on the second coming of Christ. And I got up and I looked at Aubrey and I said, Aubrey, do you know why your grandma and grandpa don't move to Florida and sit in the sun and wait to die? I said, because there's a world that needs Jesus Christ who's going to tell them. In closing, one of the things that thrills me about our kids, a third of our student body characteristically is heading for the mission field. We have over a thousand graduates on fields around the world and in America. The sun never sets on the graduates of Ambassador Baptist College, but what they're serving God. And I tell our young people this, if I were a young person sitting where you're sitting, knowing what I know now, my attitude would be this, I'm going to spend my life on a mission field somewhere unless God stops me. First time we were in the Philippines, 1978. Uh, we got there, we were told that if you're two hours late for service, you don't have to worry, they'll be there waiting for you to get there. And they said, many times there'll be as many people on the outside looking in as there are in the building. And I thought that's public relations, you gotta go to the Philippines. But it didn't take long for us to find that out. We got hung up through that Cracker Box Airport in Manila. They have a beautiful new airport now. But we got hung up for two hours. After we got through, the missionary said, Brother Comfort, you're to have a service two hours ago on the other side of Manila. He said, don't worry. They'll be there waiting for you to get there. So we got in his Jeep and sped across Manila like a demon. He was driving. I wasn't. And folks, let me tell you something. When we got to the other side, I was all prayed up. Uh, there was nothing between my soul and my Savior when we got to the other side. We went upstairs, and the church had only been going for several months. It was jam-packed. And people were standing at the back, their clothing saturated with perspiration. They had been waiting two hours for our arrival. I preached, gave the invitation. The aisles were jammed, people coming to get saved. After the service, so the missionary came to me and said, Brother Comfort, you're to have another service two hours ago on the other side of Manila. 
I thought, my stars, why didn't you schedule the first one over there and the second one over here? But I think I know why. He was trying to find out if I was really right with God by riding with him. So we got in his Jeep and sped across Manila like a demon, got to the other side. Terry Spears from Richmond, Indiana, had been there for six months, knew very little Tagalog, but his place was jam-packed. They'd been waiting two hours. Again, I preached, gave the invitation, the aisles were jammed, people coming to get saved. And somebody came to me after the service and said, Brother Comfort, tomorrow you're going to meet one of the most unusual men you've ever met in your life. Dan Cruz was a millionaire. He owned many islands in the Philippines, and he was getting ready to take his own life. So he called up Gavino Tika, the missionary with whom we were preaching. And he said, Gavino, four nights in a row, I've heard you on the radio. And he said, I think you've got the answer to what I need. He said, I'm about to commit suicide. And uh, Gavino said, Mr. Cruz, I've heard about you. He said, but listen, I am swamped. Could one of my missionary helpers come and talk to you? He said, if anybody comes with you, I'm committing suicide. So Gavino went out and he led Dan Cruz to Jesus Christ. Listen, in one week's time, after Dan Cruz got saved, he led 100 of his workers to Jesus Christ. And one of his burdens is to reach many of those islands that have never heard the gospel. 7,000 islands in the Philippines. Many of them have never heard the gospel. So he set up a service force in an island called Sabatanan. Sabatanan, before the military regime, was called no man's land. There was no coming to going. After the military regime, it was relaxed, so there was coming and going. And on the way to the island that night, Dan looked at my wife and Mrs. Brubaker, my song leader's wife. He said, now ladies, whatever you do, don't close your eyes during the prayer. He said, these men get up in the morning, they drink anything with alcohol in it, they live in incest with their own children. He said, Miss Comfort, don't let your three daughters get more than an arm's length from you. All of my three daughters were small in 1978. So, uh, we were filled with apprehension, as you would be, right? So we got to the island, started the place where I was to preach that night. Over 800 people on the island of Sabatanan. That night, in that service, there were over 700 people. I stood in front of the house where I was to preach, and the little kids just crowded around my daughters. They had never seen a white girl before, so they had to touch their skin. And I was scared to death, folks. I said, Lord, if you don't send a holy hush over this crowd of children, I said, our time and our money and our efforts are wasted. We'll never turn the hearts of these people to you if you don't send a holy hush over this crowd of children. So I got up to preach through an interrupter. And I looked on the rooftop. They were sitting on the rooftops. They were hanging out the windows. And everywhere I could see was a sea of bronze-skinned faces. As I preached a simple message on John 3:16, those children stood there like they were little wooden soldiers, watching every move I made, 
listening to the interpreter. When I gave the invitation, scores of people responded. Scores. Somebody came to me and said, Brother Comfort, the man whose house we're standing in front of, he's 74 years of age. He was saved tonight. He's standing over here. He wants to thank you for coming. He said, there's another man over here, 82 years of age that was saved tonight. He wants to thank you for coming. I went over to these two old gentlemen. They took my hand and they said, Mr. Comfort, thank you for coming. They said, this is the first time that we have ever heard that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. They said, we don't have much time, but thank God, now we know we're going to heaven. They grabbed me a hold of the neck and began to weep on my shoulder. I want to say, Pastor, no love offering that I have received in 60 years meant the snap of the fingers to what that meant to me that night. I thought after a while the crowd would disperse and go back to their houses and talk about these white foreign invaders, but they didn't. You know what they did? They followed us in mass. And as we were going to the boat dock, they were shouting something. I asked the missionary, what are they shouting? He said, they're shouting, come back, come back, come back. We got down the boat, started to row down the boat. And they had climbed up on the boathouse. They had filled the boat dock and they were screaming, come back, come back. As far as I could tell, everybody in that boat that night was weeping. And I said, dear God, thank you for letting me be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, in 1986, our team was going to Maranatha Baptist Bible College. I was going to preach opening semester revival meeting. And I got a letter from Gavino Tika in the mail. And he said, Mr. Comfort, I think you need to know that we had a tremendous typhoon here in the Philippines. He said, do you remember the island upon which you preached, the island of Sabatanin? He said, almost everybody on that island was killed in the typhoon. He sent me snapshots of cold, dead corpses lying on the beaches of Sabatanin. I looked at those snapshots and I began to weep. And I said, thank you, God, that Sabatanin had the opportunity to hear the word of God. Pastor, I've seen that scene in my dreams at night. I've seen a sea of bronze-skinned faces screaming, come back. But nobody wants to go and tell them. Lift up your eyes, look on the fields. They white to harvest are. And God is calling volunteers to serve him near and far. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I humbly do my part to win that soul for thee. Folks, he's coming again. Let's bow our heads in prayer.